Welcome to the Helpful Woman Podcast. Today is Thursday, July 16th, 2020. First, I wanted to wish a very happy birthday to my amazing daughter, Neely, who turns 17 tomorrow. We are so happy for you, and we are so proud of you. Also, public service announcement for anyone who drives in Bergen County. Be on alert. Today is the second podcast in our mini-series on when bad things happen in pregnancy. We will be discussing global health and how difficult it is for pregnant women around the world. In some countries, the rates of maternal mortality are extremely high, and there is little or no access to good prenatal care or medical care at the time of delivery. Our guest today, Dr. Tara Shirazian, is an amazing woman who saw this problem and decided to do something about it. She started an organization called Saving Mothers, which is devoted to helping women around the world. I hope this podcast will be a great introduction to global health, but also an opportunity to be inspired by one amazing person who is changing the world. Thanks for listening. Have a great day and a great weekend. Welcome to today's episode of Healthful Woman, a podcast designed to explore topics in women's health at all stages of life. I'm your host, Dr. Nathan Fox an OBGYN and maternal fetal medicine specialist practicing in New York City. At Helpful Woman, I speak with leaders in the field to help you learn more about women's health, pregnancy, and wellness. Okay, we're here with Dr. Tara Shirazian, who is an assistant professor of OBGYN at NYU. She's the director of Global Women's Health at the NYU Global Institute of Public Health. She's the co-author of a book, Around the Globe for Women's Health, a practical guide for the healthcare provider. She's the president and founder of Saving Mothers, which is a terrific organization. Tara, welcome to Healthful Woman. I'm so happy you're here. Thank you so much for having me. So excited, Amy. We're going to talk a lot about you know Saving Mothers and about global health and, and all the work you're doing. But just so our listeners understand who you are, like who's Tara Shirazian? What led you into medicine and OBGYN in the first place? It's interesting because I get asked this question a lot. And I also get asked sort of what led me to saving mothers as well. But, you know, I think as a young kid growing up, you know, in Long Island, I'm the daughter of immigrant parents. So I'm a first generation American. I was always sort of interested in kind of pushing myself, I guess. So as a high school student, I had the opportunity to work in a few hospitals in the area. At that time, we used to call it candy striping. I'm not sure what it's called now. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like that ages me a little, but we were candy stripers in the hospital. And I remember being like 14, 15, wearing these literally red and white striped uniforms. My station was labor and delivery. I was stationed on the maternal health floor. And so I had the job of like bringing flowers to the moms, making sure they had water in the delivery rooms. You know, can you imagine? We don't, we don't even have that anymore, (laughs) but that's moms. You're on your own. Forget it. (laughs) I know now it's like, there are no candy strippers, but at that time it was, it was definitely a thing. And it was something that a high school student could participate in. So it was a really unique experience and it kind of opened my eyes for the very first time, because my, I don't come from a family of physicians, to medicine in action and to being in an environment where literally at that time, it was just really about helping people. So at 14, 15, I could be part of helping, you know, patients, even in a small way with a bouquet of flowers or with a, a little bit of water, 
you know, and the role was so minimal, but to me, you know, it seemed so important. Yeah, so, listen, it's that it's, was my yeah. first experience. Yeah, and listen, yeah. you come in and you're you're <laughs> you're a person and you have a smile and you know it's so nice for for uh, someone who just gave birth to see, you know, a teenager volunteering to help and it, it is it it is really nice, you know, if you're a patient to have someone come in your room and visit you and do things for you, and yeah, you're you know you're not prescribing medicine and, and all those, but who cares? Like it's really is helpful and it's it's helpful yeah. in the healing process and people feel sometimes also, you know, isolated in a hospital and alone. And it's a, you know, cold and scary place. And it just makes it a little more pleasant and, and uplifting. Yeah. So I think, you know, that was my first experience of any kind in a hospital. And I really loved it. And I really loved the idea, just like the very simple idea of being helpful to other people and to doing doing things that made their lives better and it was kind of even as a like a teen it made you feel really good to be helpful to other people so i think that's really when it started and then i applied when i was a senior in high school <laughs> i applied to a combined medical program you know, after a few years of candy striping, I applied to Brown's combined medical program because I heard, you know, you could go, you could go to Brown and, you know, you didn't have to do medicine, but you could if they accepted you, but it was like a very competitive program and they didn't accept anyone and, you know, that sort of thing. But I, I said, why not? I'll, I'll try, you know? And so I applied and for some crazy reason, they took me. So <laughs> well, they made they made a good choice. And so that that program, it's just to to explain. It's instead of doing four years of college and then applying to medical school, which is another four years, they accept you out of high school into. It was a seven year program at the time. No, it or was, was eight? a full eight year program. Right. But yeah, you don't have but you don't have to apply point. to medical school. Meaning you're right. in. You're done from high you're school. You're in. Wow. You're in. You that, have to just keep up your grades and do your prerequisites. Right. So you must but, have done a lot yeah. of heavy dr heavy drinking in college then, because you didn't have, you didn't have to sweat anything. <laughs> right. <laughs> I just had to get by. Exactly. Right. Yeah, I was like an a English and American lit major. Yeah, and which is I, really uh, nice. You don't have to. You don't have to focus on all the sciences and you know enter the rat race, the pre med rat race to get into med school because you're already in. So you can focus on you know, humanities and learning about the world. And I think that's one of the reasons that Brown has that program to let undergrads sort of be undergrads and not pre-meds. Right. right, exactly. Wow. So, you know, it really allowed me to do a lot of other things in college and kind of pursue my this passion I had for being involved. I'm going to say it was really like about being involved in problem solving in healthcare. Like I started a program when I was a sophomore at Brown, my second year. Um, and I'll, I'll never forget this because, you know, I took this class called emergency medical systems and I was 19 and they stationed me in the emergency room um, at Rhode Island Hospital. And again, I'm dating myself, but at that time there were no interpreters. So we actually didn't have any like in-person interpreters in the hospital. We had very few, only for like Spanish, and we had a few for Portuguese, but at Rhode Island Hospital, which many don't know, Providence is one of the most 
culturally and linguistically diverse cities in the country. I mean, they speak over a hundred languages in Providence. It's wow. crazy. I know. <laughs> so in the ER, there'd be all these patients that couldn't speak English. They would speak like Cambodian and Laotian and Hmong, Vietnamese, and you know, you name it, Bengali. Like they spoke so many different languages and there weren't any interpretation services. And so I didn't realize this until I did the class. But when I was there, there would be frantic patients in the emergency room that no one could understand. So I thought that was a huge problem. And I spent like the next, you know, six years developing a what they called a, a service learning program where we used Brown undergraduates and medical students to supplement the interpretation services that didn't exist in the hospital. I mean, just ones um, that were that happened to be bilingual based on either what they took in school or where they grew up or something like that. Bilingual, exactly. Yeah. Bilingual students that we trained uh -huh. because ah, you had okay. to be trained by for, for interpretation. interpreters. Right. Yeah. For interpretation and also for like, you know, what we would call today HIPAA, right. but just, you know, being compliant by hospital standards and making sure you're confidential and et cetera, responsible. Wow. So we trained them and they served as supplementary interpreters. <laughs> wow. And I ran that program for, for years. That's crazy um, because I I've known crazy. I've known you for so long. I, <laughs> I, know. We, I mean we've been we've uh, we've been friends forever, and I didn't know any of this. It's unbelievable! Yeah, it's, wow, see it's podcasting, crazy. it's unbelievable. <laughs> it's crazy. I know. I, I haven't even gotten up to modern day. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, but that we haven't entered the modern era where where, where you yeah, where you and I are no longer in black and white. We're <laughs> yeah. But wow. didn't have they had like no phone services? This was mm -hmm. pre interpreter phone services. Right. It wasn't so, like, pre-telephone. It wasn't. It wasn't. <laughs> it was, though, though it was pre-cell phone, pretty mm -hmm. much. None of us had cell phones at that time. Yeah, it was pre-cell Yeah, I mean, what, what year, yeah. what year, I'm, I'm going to totally date Let's you. What see. year did you graduate? You, you must have started at Sinai sometime around 2004 or something. Yeah, let's see. I graduated high school nine. So that was like 97. Yeah, when it started. Cause, yeah. Right, because yeah. we, we met. Yeah. yeah, we met when you finished medical school and went into OB and came to Sinai. So we trained together. Right. I guess we can call it training together. Yeah, yeah. trained together. You trained me. <laughs> you were my head chief. I learned all my best OBGYN skills from you. Right. So, yeah. So I, I met I met Tara when she was Terry back way back when, and this this bright eyed intern. And as you know, I fell in love with you immediately because you're such a oh. great attitude and such a kind person and a great doctor. And uh, as you so as, as I left so residency nice. and you you moved up the ranks, as, as you know, I I got a lot of pride in how you developed in your training and became such a good teacher and mentor for others. So this is me embarrassing you to all thank the listeners you, out you. there. Well, <laughs> they should know how amazing you are. So you have always, you know, you're the best teacher, brilliant, brilliant doctor, <laughs> always training us. You know, I always remember all the things you told me, you know, like I would be worried. Are we going to have to see, are we going to have to section this patient? I remember vividly as like an intern and you would kind of calm me down. You'd be like, we're going to deliver her. Either she's going to get a session or she's going to get a delivery, but we will take care of her. It will be fine. <laughs> oh, that's, that, that's yeah. it. What, what, what brought exactly. you, yeah. What brought you to OB, GYN? Was it just, was it women's health was always something from your 
you know, high school experience or did there, was there something in medical no. school that sort of sparked you to do OBGYN? It was medical school. I mean, I did a rotation, medical school rotation, and I had OBGYN first. You know, everyone in those days, they're probably still saying this, but in those days, people would be like, oh, you don't want to do OBGYN. It's the worst career. It's the worst career for a woman. Like you can't have a family, <laughs> you know, it's you're up all, all night. You don't want to do that. And so I had put it first in my medical school rotations. It was like my very first rotation. And I was like, okay, well, I'm going to do it. We'll see. You know, everyone says it's really not great. And I loved it. I mean, I just, I wanted to take other people's calls. <laughs> I love the energy. I love moving between the labor floor and the operating room. And the we had an emergency room as well at Women and Infants. So we right. had an independent emergency room for women. It's amazing. I mean, women so and infants really is, is, you know, it's obviously one of the one of the top places in the country for OBGYN. It's and it has been for a long time. So you also had a you had an opportunity to be such a quality place and see the best of OBGYN, which probably helped you go into it. Yeah. And then and then, awesome. and then and then and then you had it. a then you had to degrade yourself to come and work with me <laughs> after after no. being at the Mecca. To come on with Fox. Oh my God. <laughs> was Sinai was the best. I mean, you only you only realized how important your training is later. You know, you never realize it kind of at that moment. Like, right. you know, you feel like you're kind of going through the ringer and it's so hard. And am I gonna be any good? How am I gonna do all this? But you know, then after the fact, you realize, oh my God, like. I can, I can operate. (laughs) It's like, I know how to manage things, you know, it may may come as a shock to our listeners that when we finish, we're a little surprised (laughs) that we can do what we do. Yeah. And listen, it's it's great training program. And we were great. You know, we had, we had the experience of going to Elmhurst hospital, which is a really a fantastic city hospital in New York, which is also, you know, tremendously diverse in terms of patient population and staff and, you know, just wonderful, yep. wonderful people to take care of. They're so thankful. It's just such a lovely place. And it's crazy busy. And it's a, a real teaching hospital because the residents are there taking care of the patients, obviously supervising with, you know, with it's it's done well, but it's, it's not a quote unquote private hospital. So the patients sort of all assume and expect that they're going to see the medical students and the residents and then the attendings and it's it's done in a way and it's such a great place to train and i mean some of my i mean almost all of my fondest memories of training are from elmhurst yeah it's really amazing and it teaches you how to be responsible for your patients yes and i think that's sort of a really important thing to learn in medicine you know how can I be responsible and do the best that I can for, you know, each patient in front of me? Yeah, it's such an important part of training because on the one hand, you know, when you are training or when you're training someone else, you know, you have to make sure that, you know, since they're still learners, that they're doing things that are correct. You don't want anyone to make a mistake, obviously. But on the other hand, it's that that sense of ownership and responsibility that when you're when you have that feeling like my decision matters. And so I need to make a good decision here with what to do, as opposed to just every time something comes up, me asking somebody, what do I do? What do I do? What do I do? And that is, it's, it's not so much knowledge as much as a a mindset, as you're saying that you just, you feel responsible that this is on you. And that's a very important trait for a doctor to have. And I think it's a very important thing to learn. I really do. I think that, that the best doctors sort of feel that way. And 
you know, are constantly working to improve, improve themselves to improve the care they provide and, you know, think critically at all times. Right. And it's definitely not just knowledge. I mean, you, you would have people who are 10 years out of training and really know what they're doing and can make good decisions. But on top of that, when you feel a sense of ownership, it's not just a decision, but it's a follow-up. Meaning I can make right. a decision and send somebody off to a, for a consultation with somebody else. But if I feel ownership, I'm going to make sure that I talk to the patient afterwards. I talk to the other doctor afterwards. I make sure that I know what's going on also. I'm on top of what's happening. And that's only from a sense of responsibility and ownership. And that's something that is a, is partly trained and partly a character trait. Yeah, I agree. It's wow. True. And so, and <laughs> And so obviously you at some point made this decision that you were going to get involved in global health. And yes. how, how did, when did that happen for you? How did that evolve? Well, so I think, you know, I always cared a lot about the access of the underserved communities. You know, Brown kind of taught me that. It sort of taught me that there are all these underserved communities that don't have good access to healthcare. And they largely are not thought about, like people don't actively advocate for them. To to finish that story, I actually had the opportunity to go to the state house (laughs) in Mm. Providence because Providence is a very small, I mean, it's not a very large city just in terms of size. Mm -hmm. So you can actually go to the Capitol, Capitol building in town. It's sort of right next to Brown, Brown University. And so I had the opportunity to go to the Capitol building and advocate for resources for non-English speaking patients, you know, that the fact that they didn't have interpretation services in the hospital was a problem that needed to be addressed and they needed like policy around this. And when I, when I went there and I spoke with the representatives, the city council men and women, they were not aware of this issue. <laughs> they were like, oh, this is a problem. We, we never <laughs> heard of this before. And I'm like, well, but there are all these patients that speak other languages and there are no good yeah, but they interpretation would, services. You don't even think about that as a possibility. You know, if you're, if you're, right. if you speak the language, it never even dawns on you what it's like to go to <laughs> right. emergency room if you don't speak the language. And right. it, it, it makes a lot of sense that they wouldn't know. And that's why it's great that right. you told them. But then I realized, okay, well, you know, who advocates for those who can't advocate for themselves? So I think that's sort of where that, when that, where that idea first came from. And then I was in residency. So as a resident, you know, you're constantly busy. I didn't really have that much time to sort of do other things after I graduated medical school. I was just focused on, you know, training, being a good OBGYN. And then I had the opportunity, I want to say it was like my third year of residency. I don't know if you remember, but we had this thing called the Medical Students Making Impact Group. Mm -hmm. And they were a global health group at Sinai that organized trips. Yeah. And they did global health work abroad and they organized trips and they looked for like faculty advisors and they kind of did these trips every year. And I had the opportunity to go on one of those trips with a fellow resident. And it was a great experience because as a clinician, you know, in that role of OBGYN, I had never been in a clinical context other than my training. So it was really interesting to see sort of how to use my skills in the global health setting. And, you know, I learned a lot, but one of the things that I took away from that was, okay, so here we are, we went on this trip, which, you know, I learned a lot, that was great, but what did we really give back to the community 
that we just saw and visited. Yes, we did, you know, a few surgeries, you know, we learned some things, but it really was not sustainable. Right. Where where did you go? We went to Honduras. Honduras. um, Outside of Tegucigalpa to a little, it was like a little, I want to say it's like a makeshift clinic or a ambulatory care kind of clinic, but it doesn't exist usually. Like they set it up for outside groups to kind of come in and do surgeries and do work. Right. Trips like that are really you know, on the one hand, for the for the students and the residents who go, it is a good experience because it's such high volume and you see problems or pathology that you wouldn't see maybe in the United States. And so it's it's an educational experience medically. Right. But also, I think that it is sort of an awareness type of a trip, that it's eye-opening, that you see what it's like in other parts of the world that don't have the same resources that we have in our country and what it's like for women in particular, when the trips are related to women's health, what it's like for them in regards to gynecologic care, and particularly with delivery. And so it is educational in that regards also for the students and residents. But like you were saying, the trips alone don't, you know, they have some impact, obviously, on the people who you're you're helping there, but that's sort of a drop in the bucket, so to speak. And it doesn't have the same level of impact as an ongoing program or initiative to continue something like that. Right. So that sort of led me to this idea of trying to create my own, you know, version of a global health program, which then evolved into a nonprofit, but a global health program that would serve women, that would be sustainable that would be kind of in line with local culture, local health beliefs, and really have the most impact for those local communities. Because, you know, I really think there's so much value in, even for us, you know, as for us, as the as the U.S. trained physicians to go into these settings and operate and see clinical disease and, you know, learn about global health in the low resource setting. But I also think, and I also thought it was possible to give back even more to the community as we do that. So, you know, I didn't think it needed to be an either or kind of thing and that global health programs needed to evolve from what they were to be able to accomplish both. Right. And just just for context, you're doing this and you're like, one or two years out of residency, right? Yeah, I was actually, I graduated residency and I became the director of global health in the department there at Sinai. And I founded Saving Mothers the following year. So I started directing global health the very first year that I stopped, you know, that I was in attending. And then I started Saving Mothers the following year. Saving Mothers was founded in 2009, but really the only reason that it even took till 2009 was because it took us about <laughs> nine months to get all the nonprofit paperwork, you know, together and submitted. It was an extensive process. Right. And that is just, I mean, I can't overstate how incredible that is. That's so unusual that someone just finishing their training. I mean, I know training is a, is a long time. And so technically we're not like quote unquote young when we finish residency, but in the world of medicine, we're very young. We are literally like just graduates. We walk out and to to do that and start, you know, seeing patients and taking care of patients and being a doctor and being an OBGYN, which has all its own stresses and all its own, you know, complicated areas to start also 
addressing global health and starting a nonprofit is really amazing. And your parents must be pretty proud of you, I assume, right? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I have have great parents. I really do. They've always been very supportive, even though sometimes they're like, wait, what are you doing now? They're like, what? Okay. (laughs) Do you think think that some of this coming back to global health is related to the fact that you're first generation American, that your family is an immigrant family? I think it is. I mean, I've always grown up, you know, speaking more than one language and I've always felt those who are not, you know, centrally part of the system kind of don't get the same care and maybe aren't understood in the same way. I think it definitely impacts impacts my decision to do global work. But I also think, I don't know, I've also had this like very strong sense. And I don't, honestly, I don't know where it comes from, but it just kind of creeps up on me. <laughs> Actually, it regularly creeps up on me, this sense of like responsibility. I should be doing this because I can do this. I just had the opportunity to have this amazing education, this amazing training. You know, I have every resource. I have fabulous colleagues. I have great friends that will help. You know, I I can do this and I should do this because who else is going to do this? I don't know if you remember or not, but when I would come back to Elmhurst as an attending when I was uh, training and I was, you know, taking moonlighting shifts at Elmhurst so I could you know, have my family and not get my home taken away from me. I would put on the the little blackboard on the wall. I would sometimes put what I thought to be inspirational quotes, and all the quotes yeah. and all the quotes were almost always from movies because I know other formal education <laughs> um, other than watching movies. And one of my favorite quotes to give to medical students and residents is, "With great power comes great responsibility," Absolutely. which was said by you know Ben Parker, Spider Man's uncle. Yeah, and but I think that's really true in medicine that you and I and all of us have been we worked hard for it, but we've also been given this great power to have an expertise in medicine and healing and helping others. And a lot of it is given to us because people trained us and taught us and did research so we understood and all of that work. But it does come with great responsibility that we have to use that to help others. And that's really the calling. And, uh, you know, obviously you have a great sense of it, which is part of what you're doing. I wanted to address global health just so we understand currently how much mm-hmm. of your time is spent doing patient care versus teaching versus administrative work versus global health work? Is it, you know, just, just so we understand sort of what you're doing on a, on a weekly basis, give or take. Yeah, I wish like I could very nicely sort of describe it, but I'm basically pretty much always working (laughs) in some capacity. (laughs) Uh A lot of my work is interlinked. I see it as interlinked. So I I never see it as like a burden. It does kind of all flow for me, but I am a full-time OBGYN. So I see patients in the office three days a week, three full days a week. I operate one day a week and one day a week is quote unquote global health. So it's really my administrative slash global health time. And then all your nights, weekends and spare time is also doing this. Right. Obviously. And exactly. you, and, 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 you know, and trips, fam- trips and, and, yeah. and, and your family and family. all the other things you do. It's, <laughs> right. it's, they're everywhere. Um, so exactly. in, in, in terms of global health, just so we could take a step back. And so our listeners understand many of them do, but many of them might not. In terms of maternal health, what are the issues? Like what are the big ticket issues with global health that that you would like to address or tackle or 
you know, solve or improve? I think that one of the main issues is disparity in access. I mean, that's probably the biggest issue. Maternal mortality was coined many years ago by UNICEF as the greatest health divide in the globe. And it literally is the greatest health divide in the globe because you have entire countries that have maybe a handful of OBGYNs, I mean, trained in obstetrics and gynecology. And you have the vast majority of women delivering around the globe with a maybe semi-skilled or even unskilled birth attendant or community health worker of some kind at their bedside. So you're talking about a lot of low-risk women, young women, you know, who often die at home of things like a postpartum hemorrhage or, you know, an infection or a PE or, you know, pre-clamp an eclamptic episode without any access to health facilities, without access to C-section, really without access to a trained professional. So I think that's why OBGYN is the greatest health divide in the globe. Right. I and think, you know, I think the problem, sorry, just one last point. Yeah. I think the problem is that around the world, people think of pregnancy as low risk. Like women have been doing this for years. Like anyone can deliver a baby, you know, anyone can be at bedside, you know, why do we need sort of all these resources and training and skill? Um, but once you're, once you actually understand the nature of obstetrics, you know, you become aware that it's actually a very high risk. I don't need to tell you this <laughs> as I risk MFM, but it actually is an at-risk state. It should be thought of as an at-risk state until proven otherwise. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's the, the numbers are staggering. I mean, when we talk in the U.S. and we do talk about maternal mortality in the U.S., which is basically a woman who dies either during pregnancy delivery or after delivery sort of related to pregnancy because the deaths can occur postpartum as well. And that's sort of defined right. as a maternal mortality. In the U.S., and we talk about it, and there there is a problem because there are women dying here who should not yep. be, and it, it is a problem. But the numbers we're talking about are per 100,000 births. That's like the denominator. And so the numbers are, is it nine per 100,000 births or 12 or 20? Something in that range, which in everyone is tragic and too many, but that's sort of the the numbers we're talking about. When you right. go to, to to countries that don't have the same infrastructure and access, it's it's like per a hundred or per a thousand. It's just the numbers are are mind blowing how different it is from here. Right. And it's, you know, when what you said before struck me so much how this idea, oh, people have been delivering forever, you know, yeah, women would die when they delivered, right. many of them. So, I mean, you don't have to go back that far. You're talking about, you know, 100 years, 150 years. If a woman survived the birth, it was an amazing thing because there was a significant risk of having a baby because of, you know, there weren't antibiotics per se, there weren't blood transfusions, there wasn't an ability to do a C-section in, in these circumstances. And that's what it's like in these other places potentially yeah. that it, it's like the U S exactly. 150 years ago and it's terrifying. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, and there hasn't been as much progress as there should be, you know, so it's still a huge problem because 
again, there are no trained providers. I think that's probably one of the major issues. That's one of the major issues. One of the others are, some of the others are, there's no access to like a C-section. I mean, I've been to areas of Africa where if you were to even walk into an OR, even if they had an OR, it was so dilapidated and, you know, unhygienic and there was no staff and there were no tools, there were no basic instruments that you would be afraid to operate on a woman in those operating rooms. Wow. So that's the circumstances for many. And I've been, I've been to like health huts in the middle of Africa, like between Liberia and Sierra Leone or in parts of Kenya where you have to travel, you know, many women travel like two days to get to this health hut because they'll travel by foot or they'll travel in some type of like a, a cart that they use to transport other things like animals and they'll arrive at the health hut and you would walk into this health hut maybe. And I tell you, there's like an old mattress on the ground, no tools and nothing else and nobody like there's nobody in the health hut. So your heart just breaks because you're like a woman, you can see this kind of unfolding, like a woman walks two days and she arrives here. Right. If she has a complication and she comes here, who's going to take care of her and where are their tools and what are they going to provide her? That's the situation. You know, in many places I've been, that's the situation that women face. It, um, it's, it's, it's so awful. And it's, you know, when people, you know, there's so much talk in the U.S. about our C-section rate is too high, right? They say it's too high. Right. And maybe it is, maybe it isn't. Okay, we can argue about it. But what a luxury to be arguing right. about whether we're doing too many cesareans because cesareans were invented to save the life of the mother and or to save the life of the baby. That's why they're there, right? Yeah. And so the fact that we have such an ability to do it without even thinking about it, to, to do that, I mean, and it's not just necessarily maternal mortality, you know, in, in parts of the world, even women who deliver vaginally, they're in labor for so long that they can have tremendous complications related to their pelvic floor. They could have fistulas and incontinence. And these are young women who will have incontinence for 60 years afterwards. And it's just horrible that this is what exists in the world in many places. It's not, these are not small, you know, you know, isolated, you know, examples. It's huge parts of the world have this problem. And we're arguing about, are we doing too many of these life-saving procedures? We definitely have a lot of luxuries, you know, in the United States. And I think the other big piece of global maternal mortality is that 99.9% of these deaths are preventable. Wow. I mean, that's how many women die of postpartum hemorrhage infection preeclampsia. If you had basic medications, you had protocols and strategies in place, you could save their lives. So these are deaths that shouldn't happen. So I think the preventability of the death, and it's also a young, low-risk woman for the most part, is really the biggest tragedy. Like we can, we can actually change these odds. We can prevent these women from dying. And as you know, the death of a mother is not, you know, we're not just talking about the death of one person. We're also talking about her household, her other children, because fertility rate in many of these, in many countries is very high. 
So her children are then orphaned. Her newborn is more likely to die, something like 10 times in the first two years of life, more likely to die. And her other children are more likely to be orphaned. And the community and household is also more likely to be at risk. So it's not just her death, but it's it affects the entire community that she lives in. And and what is, you know, what are the core reasons this problem exists? Is it just an issue of general, you know, poverty in the country? Is it cultural? Is it, you know, just lack of education that this is happening? You know, why is it so different? I think we do have our own issues with maternal mortality in the United States, though, and we can talk about that, too, because we actually do have a local New York City program right now. But it's a different set of issues. I think globally, the biggest issues are really it's probably the lack of priority and the lack of ownership and regard for a woman's life. I mean, I really think it's about women's human rights. Just it's mm-hmm. a human rights issue. Right. And it's been couched as a human rights issue by many groups. But like I have literally been in meetings with ministers of health of various countries where they're like, well, we have all these health priorities and we have this tiny budget. Like maternal mortality is not as important as like rotavirus. I'm like, really? It's not as important as rotavirus, right? (laughs) So if those two health priorities are being compared to one another, then you have a basic problem. So Saving Mothers is a nonprofit that I started in 2009, and our goal is to decrease maternal mortality globally. And by this, I mean we focus on low-cost, high-impact interventions that can save women's lives, that we can use to teach and train local providers on how to best provide them with life-saving care. And we've spent the last 10 years literally developing programs that then we turn over to our local teams to execute. So our goal is that these programs, these models of programs sustain themselves in our communities and continue to help women and serve women in the community so that they don't die excessively of maternal mortality. And what, what communities are you currently working in? So we work in Kenya, West Pokot, Kenya. We work in Santiago, Santiago, Guatemala. We work in the Dominican Republic. We have a New York City maternal mortality program. And prior to those countries, we've been in Liberia. And we were in Sierra Leone. So we've worked in a number of countries at this point. And what what is your your staff like? Oh, we have a tiny staff. <laughs> um, we have a we have a wonderful, robust volunteer staff. So mm-hmm. we are a volunteer organization. So we have so many amazing doctors, nurses, PAs that join us. They go on our trips. They help with our trainings in various sites. They help us you know, record and compile data from a lot of our programs. So we have a really wonderful medical team that consists of everyone from medical students to seasoned attendings who join us and, and, and help us on ground. But our staff itself is like four people. We have a medical fellow, we have a development manager, we have an executive director and we have me. (laughs) <laughs> and, and and how do you how do either these communities find you or how do you find them and how do you make that connection to come in and begin doing programming or anything? 
Yeah. So I think the, the really the most important thing for me in kind of identifying where to set up a program is what type of collaborative partnership can we have on ground? Like, is the local government really interested in us being there? Like, that's probably the best, you know, mm-hmm. the local or the national government asking us to come in or supporting our work there, because I really think that that leads to the most sustainable change. For example, in West Pocot, we have a very strong partnership with the West Pocot County government. And so whenever we're there, the governor comes, you know, to the hospital to see us. He advertises our programs on the radio because he has a weekly radio show that he does for the people. So government involvement is probably the number one thing that I look for. And then if we can't have that, I look for another really good collaboration with a local nonprofit that's already been, you know, been there working on ground, maybe not in maternal health, but in some other aspect of health. And they really sort of need our help. Right. So in terms of just practically, what, what would it look like when you start somewhere and you come in what kind of programs might you be doing there or what kind of education might you be providing? Just so our listeners get a, a grasp of the types of things you're actually doing, like what kind of skills yeah. are you teaching or whatever? Sure. So every program starts with just a basic needs assessment. So we go, we take a small team on ground and we understand the local layout of health, like how many health centers are there, how many hospitals, how many doctors do they have, how many nurses, how many you know, birth attendants, for example. And then we devise training for each type of group. So like, for example, for our birth attendants, we have a whole school for birth attendants that we started in Guatemala that is based in teaching them about complications, referrals, and how to administer quality prenatal care in the home. So that program in can exist in and of itself like we could go in a community and just teach the community you know the um comadronas or the birth attendants they're called something different in each country and so we would teach them how to do a prenatal visit sometimes we teach the birth we teach the birth attendant how to use a doppler which they've never used before which is just this tiny little ultrasound that listens to the fetal heart we teach them how to do a fundal height you know how to measure to the fundus of the mom to see how if her if the pregnancy is measuring appropriately you know, we teach her just basic prenatal skills. We teach the birth attendants. And then if we're teaching and training like the nurses and the doctors, we'll teach them how to do ultrasounds, which is kind of an amazing tool that in many of these communities they've never seen before. We might be training the residents and the medical officers in how to perform C-sections at the hospital level. You know, so we teach depending on the level and depending on the group, but we have programs, you know, sort of for each group that helps manage maternal health in that community. And also you developed this sort of very low tech, low cost birth kit as well. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Which Which was one I know was, we spoke about that many times and you were so proud of it and which is amazing. Can you explain what that is and what the need was? Yes. So the birth kit really came from this idea that Women were delivering in the home with no resources. Well, two problems. Women were delivering in the home with no resources. So if they were had home deliveries, they were at home and they didn't have any supplies. Their birth attendants often didn't have any supplies. And the woman herself was responsible for acquiring those supplies. So often the birth attendant would 
tell the woman, you have to get your supplies and bring them to the home for your delivery. And many of the women couldn't afford those supplies. And then at the hospital level, the hospitals, I mean, this is amazing. I think people don't know this, but there are many, many hospitals around the globe that tell women to bring their own supplies to the hospital for their delivery. They need to go out and get their gloves and get you know, their umbilical cord clamps and get a razor and get a, you know, and get like something to put, you know, under them, like a drape for, for under them at delivery, a baby had a baby blanket, a bulb suction, like they will require them to go and amass these items for their delivery and they will turn them away. They don't have the supplies they need for their delivery. So that's where this idea of the birth kit came from, that We can provide all those supplies to women, you know, in communities around the globe. We will put it all together for them. We will include a set of instructions for even the most illiterate birth attendant to be able to accomplish a delivery in the home and know when to refer in the event of of a complication. And we can do this all in a low-cost, impactful way. And so that's where the Saving Mothers Birth Kit came from. And we've sent out tens of thousands of these kits at this point in so many, we lost count. <laughs> right. I mean, just, just a simple kit alone with a pair of sterile gloves could literally save someone's life. It's, it's remarkable. Yes. What would you say over, I guess it's more than 10 years now, what have been the accomplishments that Saving Mothers and you have had in terms of global health that, that you're most proud of? Some of the most exciting, I would say, has been one, probably the birth kit initiative, because it's our longest standing initiative. And we've been able to send birth kits to women, you know, around the globe at this point. And we have other organizations even who look to us for these birth kits. So that birth kit initiative has been one really exciting one. Second is the School of Power in Guatemala, which basically started as this school for birth attendants where we were teaching birth attendants, you know, about prenatal care, obstetrics, referrals, and high-risk pregnancies, and now has evolved into a school that our birth attendants teach other birth attendants. So it's created a new cycle of training and education that now our own birth attendants run and manage. So it's one of the most, I think, best examples of sustainable health in that community. And our graduates from that school now have gone on and become nurses. They've become, you know, healthcare workers. They're paid for all the skills and training that we have taught them. So many of them are are paid to come into the home and do blood pressure checks, for example, for the ministry. So the Ministry of Health now looks at our trainees as key players in their healthcare infrastructure. So that's been really, really exciting. The Dominican Republic, that was another really big one. We actually succeeded in getting the Minister of Health. Many, many years, I was pushing the Minister of Health to provide HPV vaccine for their young girls because they had the highest rates of cervical cancer in Latin American countries. And finally, two years ago, they started vaccinating their nine and 10-year-old girls in schools. Oh, so that's amazing. We count, that among, we count that among the victories. That's huge. <laughs> that, and and what, 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 what have been your biggest disappointments in, in your efforts? 
I mean, I always wish we could do more. We still have a very small team, so we're always somewhat limited in terms of funding and people and just being able to be everywhere and do everything. I always feel like we could do more. You know, the vision is always bigger than right. right. Well, it has we to be sometimes bring to it. Yeah. How, so speaking of that, how how could people get involved? You know, our listeners or friends of listeners or whether they're doctors, not doctors, how, how can people get involved with your organization or in general to, to address global health? Well, we love our volunteers. So if anyone is interested, is a healthcare provider and wants to get involved through our website by volunteering, that's amazing. I mean, we always need more volunteers and we rely heavily on our volunteers to kind of help us with all the work that we do around the world. Um, two, if anyone has the means and resources to support us, we of course would love that. A donation as little as $15 will get a safe birth kit um, to a woman in need. Like that includes the, the cost of shipping. So we can actually deliver that birth kit to a woman in need, which is amazing. Right now we're working on COVID-19 kits. So for as little as, you know, $40, we can get a COVID-19 kit to some of our low resource communities in this difficult time so that they can prepare themselves for some of the potential issues associated with that in the low resource setting. And we didn't talk about the New York City program, but we have a local program. We are creating Empower Kit for Black women, underserved women here in the city, pregnant, who often lack access to good maternal health care. And for a donation, we can get them. And that donation, I believe, is like $50. We can get them in Empower Kit. That actually <laughs> a lot of work has gone into these empower kits so we're actually giving pregnant women in new york a set of health information like that is that we've tested with our community health workers we have a program with our community health workers in harlem and and the bronx and they've helped us shape this set of health pamphlets that are going to be specific for Black women that focus on complications. It, there's one that talks about nutrition and obesity. There's one that talks about PE. There's one that talks about mental health. We, we talk about, we, and there's one that talks about preeclampsia. And in this Empower Kit are a few tools for the women themselves, like a blood pressure kit, a Fitbit, a journal, some mental health like strategy, like a de-stressing man manual that they thought would be really great and relevant to their pregnant women. So we have some tools and then we have some health information. And the goal of these kits is to recognize health complications. Right. And to uh, give really and, and to give uh, women who may not have the same access an opportunity to advocate for themselves. So they have right. you know, they understand what they're looking for and say, hey, no, like this is a problem. And so there, that's not either uh, unnoticed or, or it's not noticed and not addressed that they can empower, they can be empowered to advocate for their own health, which is awesome. Exactly. And one of my colleagues is a health literacy specialist. I don't know if you know Chris Sarkadoulis because she's actually at Sinai. She spent her career focused on health literacy. And so we actually have another pamphlet on communicating with your healthcare provider, wow. making sure that you're heard and making sure that the way you're communicating is 
in a way that like the health system would understand what you're saying, basically kind of amazing because everyone speaks English. Right. But right, right. you know, when it's a, when it's a small help and it's a short timely health encounter, you want to make sure you're, you're speaking as effectively right. as you can. I mean, you so. could both be speaking the same language, but as everyone knows, <laughs> uh, you know, doctors and non-doctors frequently are not speaking the same language, even if right. it's the same. And, you know, and listen, that's, that's obviously, so much of that's on the doctor that we're not speaking in terms that people can understand what the hell we're talking about. And so that's right. that's that's critical <laughs> that we have to do that. And it's also critical for people who are seeing doctors, if you don't understand what she or he is saying, to speak up and say, I don't understand. Like this is not clear to me. Could you maybe rephrase it? And if if I ever heard that from someone, I'd be like, oh my God, thank you for telling me that. Like I didn't realize that I was, you know, babbling on and jargon that you didn't understand. Let me rephrase <laughs> it. And because everyone has the same goal. It's just we don't always realize, you know, right. what we say and how people may or may not understand it. And then you also, so when you refer to your website, that's www.savingmothers.org. .org. .org. Yep. But you also have a, a program called yeah. Mommy Matters, which is www.mommymatters.com. Matters.com. And, and what yeah. exactly is that program? For those who maybe are looking to support us in other ways, which we, we love all our supporters, no matter what you're looking to support. If you are pregnant or looking for the perfect gift, for a pregnant friend or a colleague or someone in your life, we have mommymatters.com and it's a social investment company. So it is a for-profit arm to saving mothers. And basically we've created a few products and we're coming up with a lot more actually because I, I have so many ideas, but we're <laughs> starting with two. <laughs> One is our postpartum underwear which is for a woman post-delivery, which is much better, nicer, more efficient, more effective than the hospital underwear. Mm -hmm. um, it has a cooling element. It's reusable and washable. It has a mesh overlay for breathability. Mm -hmm. It looks good and it's sturdy and is, is meant to be healing and the cooling element in the perineum kind of helps cool any, you know, episiotomy, small tears, things like that. So it's the perfect gift. Right. Anyone who's not, um, anyone who has not had a baby, uh, may have no <laughs> idea what you're talking about, but right, any, anyone, anyone who's had a baby is saying right now, I needed one of those. I need that. Yeah, I, I need know. that. That because yeah, we everyone, hear that yeah, all the time. Everyone's like, yeah. oh my God, what is this thing the hospital just gave me to wear on my way out of here? <laughs> and, um, yes. Okay. So that's phenomenal. Okay. And yeah. what else? And the other is a portable pregnancy pillow that's for actually the working professional woman um, because we feel like there's very little emphasis on working pregnant women mm -hmm. in the marketplace. So both of these items are unique in the market. They're patented prod products that don't currently have competitors, really. Um, but this pillow is meant to bring everywhere with you. So a woman brings it, puts it into her bag. It's small enough and portable enough that it can go everywhere. It's a dual density pillow. It's meant for work, the train, the car, the plane, the home, everywhere you go. It has a heating element, heating, cooling. You know, I'm into heating, cooling. What can I say? <laughs> um, <laughs> same thing for low back pain, neck pain. As we know, musculoskeletal injury is often high in pregnancy. So this kind of just helps provide comfort throughout the workday for the pregnant working woman. Right. And just and just to be clear, it's a it's a for-profit wing, but all the profits go to saving mothers. Yes. 
Right. All the proceeds go to saving mothers. Exactly. Right. So if you need a gift, <laughs> check out mommymatters.com. We also post health information. We have a blog, you know, so we're, we are there for our women, whether, and the people who love them, whether, you know, you want to buy a gift or donate, you know, we would love to have you. So please check out our companies and follow us. So I, I, I know you're, you're obviously very, very busy and you also have to tend to your kids who are home, you know, being distracted by something <laughs> while you're talking to me. But I just want to just, right. I want to end with asking you just a, a, a couple simple, well, maybe not so simple questions, but going through all of this, right? From, you know, going into medicine and women's health and then doing global health for all this time and what you've seen and what you've done and what you've learned. I'm just curious, what have you learned about medicine in general, like healthcare in general? Like what is something that you take away from this this whole journey of yours that you're still on? Yeah, I remain very optimistic and sort of very positive. So global work has not jaded my impression of healthcare in any way. In fact, I think that even though we have so many resources, you know, here in the U.S. and so little resources globally, health is the most important and impactful thing that you can bring to any community. I mean, there is nothing that will compete with health. I really think it's really underscored my feeling that health is the most important thing in life. I mean, we say what health, love, family, but it's health is so key to any prosperity. So, you know, I think it's just underscored my passion and love for being able to provide health care, being able to educate on healthcare, being able to sometimes just advocate for the importance of good healthcare. And I remain very, very inspired every day, essentially. So I think that's good. And what, have you, what have you learned? About, <laughs> what, what have you learned about yourself as a person? I think I've learned that really I can do as much as I have time and vision to do, which, you know, I never really thought of it like that. Like I never really thought the sky's the limit sort of thing, especially when I first started in medicine. I, I often thought like, can I do this? This is so hard. Am I going to be able to like actually execute and, you know, be effective and do all the things that I want. But, you know, these days I think the sky's the limits. I, I just have to think of it. I just have to have the vision that's big enough and broad enough to make it all happen. And I think, you know, the future is collaboration. The future is really about, you know, how can I form really strong partnerships to make these goals happen for more people? Like, I don't need to be the center of all of it. You know, I really just want these programs to grow and be sustainable and exist. So. Wow. If I can, I'm going to wax philosophical for a while. I, I think that, <laughs> yeah. you know, what you're talking about is is so true and it's really it's sort of the paradigm for how we can make change anywhere in, in any sort of problem, whether it's locally in our community, whether in the US, whether abroad. It's this idea that number one, you can do something to make a difference if you believe in yourself and you work hard and you have vision and effort that, you know, here you are, you're, you know, you're one person who started such a big thing. And if you didn't start it, who knows if anyone else would have done it. And also this idea of getting involvement from others to help involvement sort of locally of what's going on. And 
you know, this idea of collaboration and just working towards a common goal is really, uh, we need more of you. We really do. And they're out there. People just have to know that they can do it. I mean, listen, you know that I adore you. I've always, <laughs> I've, I've always loved you. Well, yeah, I... yeah. People walk, you know, you don't, they don't realize, you know, what you're saying. It's, you know, Terry walks in, she's has this big smile on her face and she's, you're so pleasant and kind and just easygoing. It's no one would expect that, you know, you would think that someone with what you're doing would come in and, you know, you know, start yelling and screaming and do this, do this, do this, but you're just so peaceful and easy. And, you know, that's probably why you're so successful at this. And I'm just so proud of you that you've done all this and that, you know, I, I, I knew you back when, and, you know, having to be, you know, friend of yours for all this time is just amazing. So I really, I'm, Thank I'm just, you. I'm, I'm really inspired by you. And I think so many people can be part of this vision. You know, I hope that this is that maternal mortality and, you know, leveling the playing field for women is a priority, you know, for most people. Right. But I also think that even if it's not, there probably is a priority out there for everyone. But I hope that among your listeners, we have some that are that feel strongly and and passionately about this issue and they will get involved with us. I mean, I can't tell you enough every day, you know, more and more people inspire me, you know, more, more and more just like regular people who step up and say, you know, I want to help you do something and I'm going to do this. This is what I'm going to do. Like I've had groups knit us hundreds of face masks, young groups, kids like that sit with their, with their knitting circles and families and knit us masks for our low resource settings so that our doctors and nurses, you know, can can be protected in these settings, you know, from COVID-19. And that's just a small example that sort of just happened. But, you know, people, everyone has it in them. I really do. I really believe that. Everyone has that passion and that interest and excitement. And I think when you get involved, you get so much more than you actually give. So it's really, it's, I highly encourage everyone to get involved in whatever makes them feel passionate. <laughs> I, I totally agree. Thank you so much for coming on. Again, if uh, any of our listeners want to learn more about Saving Mothers or about uh, Dr. Shirazi and about Mommy Matters, it's uh, savingmothers.org is your Thank website you. or mommymatters.com. Yes. Or you can email me yes. uh, at H. Email yeah, me anytime. Email anybody. Too. Yeah, and we're, this is and this is a, a wonderful organization run by a wonderful person. Thank you, Tara. Thank Terry, you so much, Katie. <laughs> thank you, thank you. Hug. I wish I could hug you through <laughs> the phone. Virtual hug. I get <laughs> virtual hug. Thank you for listening to the Healthful Woman Podcast. To learn more about our podcast, please visit our website at www.healthfulwoman.com. That's H-E-A-L-T-H-F-U-L-W-O-M-A-N.com. If you have any questions about this podcast or any other topic you would like us to address, please feel free to email us at hw at healthfulwoman.com. Have a great day. The information discussed in Healthful Woman is intended for educational uses only. It does not replace medical care from your physician. Healthful Woman is meant to expand your knowledge of women's health and does not replace ongoing care from your regular physician or gynecologist. We encourage you to speak with your doctor about specific diagnoses and treatment options for an effective treatment plan.